Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Let's drop down then to chapter 2 verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Saviour and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we will be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I love the book of Titus. Um, it's one of my favorite books in the whole New Testament um, because it's, it's short, it's simple, it's easy to outline. There are three chapters and Paul's got three points. Uh, and it contains two of the most beautiful summaries of the gospel that if you want to memorize a, a summary of the gospel, um, Paul's words in Titus 2 from 11 to the uh, to 14 and then in chapter 3 what I just read to you are just glorious summaries of the gospel that are very helpful when it comes to sharing your faith and why the gospel is so important. Um, there are three chapters in Titus and Paul's theme is a healthy church. Paul is nearing the end of his ministry. He's in his final lap. He wrote Titus probably sometime before AD 64. AD 64 um, Nero, the great, the great fire of Rome, um, wasn't releasing prisoners. He was rounding them up. We left Paul, as you remember, at the book of Acts, the very end of the book of Acts, in prison, in house arrest. Um, uh, then uh, he, he's there 
um, for some period of time, and he's released just before the 64, I think, because Nero was rounding Christians up, then he wasn't letting them go after, after that. Um, in house arrest in Rome, you remember, he writes four epistles, his prison epistles, Ephesians, and Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, his four uh, prison epistles. And now, having been released from his imprisonment in Rome, Paul is um, setting down his final words for the church. He is, he's reaching out to two of his understudies, Timothy in Ephesus, he writes Second Timothy to him, and Titus uh, in Crete, these two young um, ministers that Paul personally uh, discipled. Um, so let's say he's released in the middle of 63. Uh, Paul's got about four years left before he's arrested again and is taken out to the Austrian Way, probably sometime in AD 67, and is beheaded, stripped of the waist at dawn, and as Roman citizens were, they were taken out to a post on the Austrian Way, uh, tied to that post on their knees, and beheaded. And God's great servant, the Apostle Paul, enters into glory. But Titus in 2 Timothy, Paul's last two epistles he writes, are marvellous because they set down Paul's um, apostolic priorities for the church. And Titus is a great example of that, these three chapters. And Paul is writing to Crete, to Titus and Crete, left Titus and Crete, because there were things in Crete that weren't quite in order. It was a, a, a church that's disordered, you might say. Um, he said, I left you in Crete to set in order what remains. And that kind of begs the question, what, what's wrong with the church in Crete? Well, reading between the lines, there are, there are three problems in Crete. First of all, there's the absence of true leadership. And Paul is going to say, um, appoint elders in every city, right? So the fact that needs to be done is an indicator that there's a, a vacuum of leadership in the church, absence of true leadership. In chapter 2, Paul will talk about the presence of bad leadership. When there's an absence of good leadership, uh, nature pours a vacuum, and so does Satan. Satan is only too glad to fill uh, the vacuum with ungodly leaders, and Paul describes them. He says in verse 10, chapter 1, there are many rebellious men. He's, he's, he's saying here, chapter 10, verse 1, verse 10, for there are many rebellious men. And the word for, of course, is expl- explanatory. And he's explaining why it's important you have these elders. We're going to come back to that again in a second. He's just, he's, he's just defined the elder qualifications, a man above reproach in his character, in his home life, and in his doctrinal commitments. And it's important to have men like that in leadership, Paul says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. These men are defiant of authority. They're rebellious. That's an important word. He actually uses that same word earlier in the chapter to describe the kind of children an elder must not have. You must not have children accused of rebellion. It's almost as if it's interesting that Paul says, you mustn't have rebellious children, for there are rebellious men in the church. And I think Paul's saying one of two things. There's a style of leadership in the home that tends to foment rebellion or that doesn't have the competence to deal with it. And if you can't deal with it in the home, how are you going to deal with it in the church? Right? Um, they're, they're, they're defiant of authority. There are many rebellious men. They're um, 
teaching is devoid of good content. They're empty talkers. Their, their, their teaching is not full of truth. It's interesting, when you find a heretic in the Bible, heretics are often found not just in what they say, but what they don't say, right? What they leave out. Like N.T. Wright, who in many ways has done a remarkable service to the church, underscoring the historical reliability of the Gospels, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But N.T. Wright goes wrong in the Gospel, and he goes wrong in the Gospel because he only has half a Gospel, which is no Gospel. N.T. Wright, there are two aspects of of justifying grace. The first is an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons all of our sins, right? And uh, Wright gets that part. But he loses the second part of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Wright, doesn't, Wright says that's a legal fiction. You can't pass righteousness around the courtroom like a gas. And it, it amazes me he will say that because he's a towering intellect. Because God takes our sin and passes it to Christ. He's no problem with that. right? But um, it's the same logic that takes my sin and gives it to Jesus, takes his righteousness and gives it to me. My union with Christ. But Wright's only got half a gospel. He's, he's an empty talker when it comes to the gospel, and that's a, that's a problem, right? So they're defiant of authority. They are um, devoid of the fullness of orthodoxy. Where am I? Um, they're deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So it's deceptive in content to have this additional aspect of the gospel. So the circumcision aspect, of course, is this sense that Christ is not enough. You've got to have Jesus and circumcision to be justified before God, right? And that's a problem. And we see that in our day as well. And when people add something that we're justified, not by Christ alone, but Christ plus repentance or Christ plus faith or Christ plus sanctification, and you're adding to Jesus. We are, we are not justified by anything we do. We're not justified by anything done by us, not done by anything done to us, not done by anything done in us. We're justified simply by what Christ has done for us. Even faith, people often have an idea of faith. I give God faith, he gives me Christ. Then faith becomes a work, right? No, faith is a receptive grace. It's the empty, dirty hands that take everything from Jesus and give nothing to him. We bring nothing to the table of the gospel, but the sin that makes the gospel necessary. So they're defiant of authority. They are um, devoid of full orthodoxy. They are deceptive in motive and in um, doctrinal content. And they are, Paul says, fond of sordid gain. They're teaching things they should not teach. There's a, a deviation of orthodoxy, but they're doing it for the wrong motive. And they're, they're, they're destructive to the church. They must be silenced because they're upsetting. Interestingly, whole families. Paul defines the church again in family units. It's interesting that. He doesn't say individuals, but families. Paul thinks of the church in, in terms of family units, households. Um, and they're also dirty in life. He says um, later on in the passage, speaking about these um, false teachers, to the pure all things are pure, But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Right? Um, So 
they talk a good talk, but their lives are empty of solid, true righteousness. They're the kind of people that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 7. Many will come in the last day and say, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. That's astounding. These are men who did wonders, who, who spoke to demons and they departed. These are men who preached the gospel. And we often think, oh, they're like the Benny Hinn people who just, just, just you know, did the miracles. You know, in the Greek, they actually, the Greeks always put the first, the first, especially Hebrew Greeks, put the most important words first in the sentence. And in the, in, the, in the Greek, it says, in your name do we not do many wonders. And in your name do we not preach and, and cast out demons. It wasn't just what they did that was impressive, but why they thought they were doing it. They thought they were doing it for Jesus. And Christ said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Their whole life. It's one thing to say, Lord, Lord, with your lips. It's quite another to live, Lord, Lord, in your lives. And these people were not doing that. Their, their lives were, were, um, were not gripped by a conviction that I must do what God says simply because God is the one who says it. They were lawless, Right? And these false teachers were that way as well. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. So the, there's the absence of good leadership, good teachers. There's the presence of bad teachers, these rebellious men. And there's also um, the surrounding um, presence of a godless culture. Paul says um, about Crete in verse 12, it's comical, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and literally lazy stomachs. This testimony is true, Paul says, for this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Now, it's quite funny because Paul is saying to Titus, these people, this culture, right? it's one thing for the church to be in the world, um, but quite another when the world is in the church. D.L. Moody famously said once, the place for the ship is in the sea, but heaven help the sea if the ship gets into it. Well, the place for the church is in the world, but heaven help the church if the world gets into it, right? And Paul is saying, he's writing, and it's kind of very um, non-multicultural. This is, this is not, Paul didn't get the diversity, inclusivity, and equality kind of memo from the federal government. Paul seems to believe there are certain sins that grip certain cultures. The fighting Irish, right? Irish are famous for their drinking and their fighting. Um, well, the Cretans are famous for their lying and their eating, their, st their lazy stomachs, their gluttonous culture, um, more bestial than human. And Paul says, this testimony is true. That is true. And it's quite funny because Paul, <laughs> Paul is telling Cret Titus, when you go, this, I want you to tell these people this about their culture. And Paul writes that to Timothy, but... Paul is conscious that, uh, to Titus, sorry, Paul is conscious that, that, that Crete are listening into his conversation, like overhearing a conversation uh, between Paul and um, Titus. And so when Titus comes and says, you all are a bunch of evil beasts, lazy gluttons and liars, <laughs> he can say, I'm not saying it's Paul said that. He's the Holy, been the Holy Spirit saying that. So it's kind of, Paul is actually setting Timothy up well. He's just the messenger boy. And we'll come back to that again in a second. 
right? So that, that's the problem. You've got the presence of ungodly, you've got the absence of godly leadership, the emergence of bad leadership, and you've got the presence of a godless culture. Later on in chapter 3, Paul describes, um, this is very convicting, he describes, he's telling these people, be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to speak evilly of no one. That is so convicting. Sometimes my coffee is only sweet if somebody else is being condemned over it. Oh, a thousand conversations come into mind when I think of that. To malign no one. Um, and of course, we always have the reformed reason for gossip. It's, it's purely for prayer, right? But um, <laughs> to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And, Paul, and they're thinking like, Paul, have you any idea the morons we live with in this country? I mean, it's like the TSA. I'm about to go and deal with the TSA again tomorrow, and I, this afternoon, and I, every interaction with them drives me crazy. It's always like, you know, Helga, if you work for the TSA, anyone here, I apologize, but I'm sure you're one of the exceptions. But there's always Helga, right? She's got biceps the small of, a, of the size of a small South American country, massive fists, she has, she has a congenital inability to laugh or have any humor whatsoever. Um, um, one of my friends, Roland Barnes in the PCI, I was going through the TSA one time in an airport with him at a conference. He comes across and starts gibbering at me in pretend Arabic. And, uh, and I'm going, what? And the guy's looking at my driver's license, Neil Stewart. And he says, and, he, and, uh, and I'm looking at him. And Roland thinks he's being funny, and the TSA is absolutely, he doesn't see any humor in this whatsoever. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get a colonoscopy and, and a number of other uh, inappropriate searches from these people um, when I meet them. And it just, we kind of are aware of those, um, of the, the warped elements of our, as our culture drifts away from God, right? And it becomes more and more godless. And there's this, there can be a real sense of, I just don't like being around these people. And Paul says, you can only be that way if you forget that you once were that way yourself. For we also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, Spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. We can only, we can only, we can only have this kind of look down your nose, self-righteous indignation at these people if we forget that we're cut from the same cloth. Right? So that's the problem. The presence or the absence of godly leadership, the emergence of bad leadership, and the surrounding presence of a godless culture. And Paul writes um, Titus, this book, this beautiful little book, to give his apostolic um, corrective to that. And there are three chapters, and there are three points. How do you, what is, what's Paul's ingredients of a healthy church? Chapter one, put good men in office of leadership. Chapter two, preach good doctrine from the pulpit. And chapter three, practice good works from the pew. That's, that's, that's Paul's um, summary. It's one-stop shop of a healthy church. Now, let's see, that, that, that clock's not working, is it? It's been 10 past. It, 
Yeah, it's been ten past nine for a while. Um, so, you're good. So, um, it's interesting, just at the start, as we work our way through, before you get to the, his, his main point, chapter one, look at Paul's mindset for ministry here. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's um, sense of identity. Who am I? A bondservant and an apostle. I'm the lowest servant, but I minister with the highest authority. And the order is significant. Bondservant first, then the apostle. Right? The bondservant is the lowest slave in the household. When the master comes home and he walks in and his feet are caked with manure um, and the excrement of cows and dogs and other animals in the, sh- in the streets, the mire of the day, and he walks in with the sandals all caked in this stuff, and all the slaves greet the master, and they look at the master's shoe. They all step back. Uh, all the Jewish ones do at least anyway, and there's one guy left standing forward. He's the doulos, the, 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 the slave, the lowest slave, and it's his job to untie the sandals. And to um, it was, it was, it was a, a job, though, beneath the dignity of a Jew to do, to, to untie the sandals of a master, which is why John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to untie a sandal strap, right? And that's Paul, his, his identity. And his mission, his mindset, I'm a bondservant, I'm a, an apostle. His mission, what's Paul for? He's for the faith of those chosen of God. He's for the faith of a particular people. He's not on a fool's mission. Um, I have been, um, in fact, for the vast majority of my ministry, I have been in small towns, in churches, struggling to gain traction and grow. It can be very, very discouraging, right? And we could think, am I on a fool's mission? And Paul says, no, you're not. There are people out there. It's like an Easter egg hunt. It would be very boring for my kids to do Easter egg hunt today because there ain't no eggs hidden for them to find, right? It's only fun if there are eggs out in the yard to find. And Paul is ministering with the mindset that there are elect souls out that God wants me to find and to meet. And that's the mindset. We're not on a fool's errand. There are people to be saved. And a particular type of knowledge. And the knowledge of the truth which is according to, which leads to godliness. We see this in chapter 2. Paul measures a theologian not by how well he thinks just, but also by how he lives. And he ministers with a long view in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago that we serve a God who cannot lie, whose word can be trusted. Whatever you face in life, whatever doubts Satan brings to your mind, you, you serve a God who cannot lie. His promises are yea and amen and will never forsake you or be broken. But at the proper time, and this is his method, at the proper time, and this is amazing because in the Greek, Paul literally says, at the proper time, God manifested, made palpable and visible and real his word in the proclamation, in the thing preached, in the, in the preach message. What Paul is saying there is, when preaching happens, something unique happens. God's word becomes tangible. Like in those movies, you know, where you see the SWAT team comes in and the lasers come out from the gun. Normally you can't see the lasers, they're hidden. You have to fill the room with smoke to see the laser, right? You don't see them normally. And God's word can sometimes feel like that. We read it, but we don't feel, it doesn't feel like God's word. But when God's word is preached, Paul says, God's word becomes manifest, it becomes touchable, tangible. 
And we all know that. Our, my closest experiences of God, without exception, there's maybe one or two times in my life where I've really met God in my devotions, in a, apart from those handful of times, the times I've met God closest to being either preaching or being under the preaching of God's Word. Something unique happens when God's Word is preached. God manifests His Word in preaching, is the literal translation of the Greek, with which I have been entrusted, a sacred trust by God. Um, a sacred trust. Interestingly as well, right, Paul says to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace. That's very encouraging. Um, it's very common for churches to be alarmed when they discover that their pastor is in fact a sinner. Every so often, like at Christmas time, people will come and bring me gifts, you know, cookies or muffins or something. And occasionally they'll just be left at the front door. I'll open the front door and there'll be like an Amazon package and there'll be a package from the church. And I'll go, oh no, why didn't they ring the doorbell? And then I'll think, oh no, did they hear me yell at the dog or my wife or one of the children? And they thought, I can't believe Pastor Stuart would yell at his kids. I do, actually, sometimes, God forgive me. But, you know, the thought that actually the pastor is a sinner can be a horrid thing for the church to discover. And right up front, Paul tells Titus, you need grace, son. You need the same grace everybody else does. Grace to you in peace. Your only hope is the gospel, right? Uh, and that's important. Um, if you haven't discovered it already, sorry to burst your bubble. Paul is a sinner. <laughs> you do it. If you, if you do believe me, ask Daphne. She'll, 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 <laughs> right. So we need to speed up because the clock's still 10, 10, 10 till I've got 21 minutes. So speeding up. So Paul gives you in this beautiful book the summary of the gospel and a healthy church. Uh, chapter one, put good men in leadership. Right, that's really important. Um, if there's been a secret of the success God's given us at Christ Covenant Church, one near the top of the list is my elders' wisdom and care in guarding our session from guys who are harmful. And th- that can be a particular... We're struggling because some guys... It's like, it's like Goldilocks' porridge. Some are too hot, some are too cold, and very few are just right. And you've got to be wise. And when you're in a smaller church and you've got a, a smaller pool of guys... You can easily kind of bend and think, well, you know, okay. And, um, and it takes great wisdom and care. Because, and, and, and my experience, if the church is not very careful here, if the church is not careful to look at God's qualifications for a man, and that if you ignore those, I promise you the devil will be only too glad to give you guys who are almost qualified but not qualified to be an elder, right? So elders... Big thing, above reproach. That means a man free of just public criticism. Right? These words mean something. But Paul and I and every other minister fall short of these every single day. It's one thing for me to be arrogant on occasions, right? But if you can come up to me and say, Son, Mr. Dr. Stewart, you are an arrogant man, then we've got trouble, right? So it's free from just public accusation. And in three areas, the elder must be a man above reproach in his home life. If any man's above reproach, and notice elders, there's always plurality. Paul never speaks of an elder in the church. It's elders. At every level, it's always plural men who are elders. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach. Notice 
the first qualification above reproach in home is flanked fore and aft by above reproach. If any man's above reproach in his home, his marriage and his children, for the reason I'm saying that, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, right? How do you know if a man is gifted at shepherding sheep? Look at the sheep God has already given him. And Paul he says, there must be a sexually faithful husband, a one-woman man, and he must have some success in raising his children in the faith. Young children in his home must profess the Christian faith, and they must have memorized John, you know, John Owen's uh, 16 volumes, <laughs> and the Shorter Catechism, and the Larger Catechism. No, they must profess to be Christians, and there's been nothing in his children's life by way of wickedness, dissipation, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an abandoned drinking and drugging lifestyle, party animal, or rebellion, defiance of his authority, that would give you due cause to call um, his qualification into question. Right. Now, that raises a thousand questions. I have no time to go into that. Now, right, um, I will say this. I've told my session, if, 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 any, if you can ever say this about any of my children in my household under my authority, I will offer my resignation. Now, I've got six kids. If I've got, if I've got five, and in God's mercy, all my kids profess Christian faith, and I thank God for that and his mercy. And it's that because of his grace, not because of my parenting. But if any of my kids were excommunicated from the church, I would resign. Now, is it possible that if I had five really godly children and, and one really wicked child, that um, the session might say, Neil, you know, God himself has said that children I have raised up and they have rebelled against me, right? And if God can raise rebellious children, surely you can too. In that case, they'd refer to the presbytery, and maybe the presbytery would come in and say, we don't find you guilty in this area. But it's general, the, the, the general rule that Paul is saying in here is that good men tend to bear good fruit in their children, right? And, and if, if that text isn't saying this, I don't know what it is. It doesn't mean that we can't have um, adult children who are capable of great backsliding in their, in their faith. I don't think Paul is speaking about that at all. These are technon as you, are young children under his authority in his household. Right. I think that's what Paul is saying. He's got to be saying something, though. Certainly not nothing. Above reproach in his character, too. And Paul gives positive, um, negative character traits. He must not be self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible. That's a very important word. It comes back again and again and again. Just, devout, self-controlled. The word sensible here um, in the Greek is sophronos, which means gripped by right reason. And Paul will say this about almost everybody in this church. Um, sensible, gripped by right reason. A person who has the moral strength by the Holy Spirit and because of the gospel to do what they know is right even when they want what's wrong. Sensible, right? character, above reproach in his home life, in his character, and in his doctrinal commitments, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. 
He must have a he must he must have a grip on orthodoxy, and even more importantly, perhaps orthodoxy must have a grip on him, and he must be able to teach it to build up what is right and to tear down what is false, refuting those who contradict. And the word refute means exposing them for what they are and who they are. Okay, and that's Paul's teaching on. Um, the importance of putting good. And he puts that in first. You'd think he'd start with the word. You've got to preach the word, Titus. Have good doctrine, Titus. But he starts with elders because elders and also deacons are like the offensive um, line in football whose job is to defend the quarterback. If the, if the offensive line are incompetent or lazy and the other team's defensive line come forward and the offensive line go, have at it, the quarterback's going to be in trouble, right? He's going to get squashed and quickly. And so um, it's so important to have these kinds of men in leadership because these kinds of men are necessary to stand around the pastor and not behind the pastor when the bullets start flying, which they will. Um, So good men in leadership. Um, Secondly, good doctrine from... The pulpit. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Now, in chapter, in verse 2, you'd expect Paul to do what? Tell you what the sound doctrine is. He doesn't do that. Not yet. He gets to the sound doctrine in verse 11. But in verse 2 to verse 10, he tells you about the effects of sound doctrine in the lives of older men, older women, younger women, and young men, and bond slaves, which are the household. Um, why do you think Paul goes to the effects of sound doctrine before the context? Because normally Paul does the verse, reverse. He gives, so in the Christian message, right, you've got um, indicatives, and they drive the imperatives, Right? The indicatives, what God has done for us in the gospel, drives what we do for God. So Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, indicatives. Blessed be the God and Father who has chosen us and so forth. And they drive the imperative, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that's normally Paul's practice. Romans 1 to 11, indicative, the gospel. And then the imperative, therefore be renewed, be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Chapter 12, right? But here, Paul starts with the imperatives and goes back to the indicatives. Why do you think he does that? Because Paul measures a theologian not by how well he thinks in his head merely, but by how well he lives in his life. Right? Doctrine is never just a matter of thinking. It's a matter of living in Paul's mind. Um, I remember hearing someone say once, it's the heart that makes a theologian, not the head. Now, what kind of mor- moronic, broadly evangelical idiot said that? It was um, Benjamin B. Warfield about John Calvin. Right? The both of them were not tiny-headed people. Benjamin Warfield outwrote, outread, and outthought any man of a generation. Right, and Calvin was a genius. 
And yet Warfield said, the fundamental trait of Calvin's nature was precisely religio, religion, piety. It is not merely that all his thinking is colored by a deep religious sentiment. It is that the whole substance of his thinking is determined by the religious motive. Thus, his theology, if ever there was a theology of the heart, was distinctively a theology of the heart. And in him, the maxim that it's the heart that makes the theologian finds its most eminent illustration. The head was there, but, but Warfield says it's the heart that makes a theologian. And that's, that's what grips me. When I, when I look at an elder candidate, I'm not just looking at his head. That's really important. He's got to understand there are, there's one God, not three, and that one God exists in three persons. Other ideas are important, right? It's like um, um, one, when I was, both times, when I was licensed to preach and when I was, um, when I was licensed to preach and when I was ordained, um, I was or, beside a guy who denied fundamental doctrines. And one of the, when I was being ordained in Mississippi Valley Presbytery, one of the guys, uh, he was actually being hired at First Press, and he was asked, and Ligon was doing, Ligon Duncan was doing the interview, which is rather embarrassing, and Ligon asked him, so are the ideas of the Bible inspired, or are the words inspired, or just the ideas? He goes, just the ideas. And like, Mississippi Valley is, is a pretty orthodox presbytery. There was like a Mexican wave, wave of horror spread across the, spread across uh, the room, and his, his, uh, his examination went downhill from there on. It was it, it go from bad to worse. I'm sitting watching this. I'm kind of moving to the side. <laughs> so if lightning struck, it, I might survive, you know. And um, at the end of at the end of the at the end of his examination, he said, "I'm sorry." He said, "I'm not very good at uh, propositional statements." And my professor of systematic theology, Dr. Rankin, got up and said, "Sir, <laughs> you're a minister of the gospel." And propositional statements are what you're called to do and paid to do. And God holds you responsible for every single one of them that comes out of your mouth. He's going, oh, okay. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. So it's, it's important that our doctrine is right, but it's the heart that makes a theologian. And that when I'm looking at a pastor or an elder, that's what I want to... Does he have a heart? Does he realize, right? Does he realize that he's speaking to broken people? By and large, we, we, we want to preach the gospel to the heart of people who are broken. Um, um, and so even, even, even in that first chapter as I'm speaking, you know, I can't deny what Paul says in chapter 1, but I know there are some of you, and I'm sure there are many of you here in this room who know good men who have, who have had... Um, difficulties with their children. And I know some of you have gone through very, very deep orders in your children. And Paul is not saying those things happened because you were a bad parent or because you failed, right? That's not, that's not what Paul is saying. Okay, I want to be very clear about that. Um, there's, the, the, there's, there's the truth there that while children in our, in our home, their spiritual formation is very, very important. But there's also the truth that when children leave the home, um, they're capable of moving closer to God or drifting further from God and, and, and breaking our hearts. And that's not a, that, that, that matters, right? That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pastoral truth that I cannot deny. And Paul's not denying it in chapter 1 when he makes that point. So Paul here unpacks the effects of sound doctrine. Notice the word sensible. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible. They do what they know is right. 
Older women um, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, um, teaching what is good. So they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. When young women get together and talk about their husbands, they're inclined to say, yeah, your husband's a real jerk. I don't understand how you love him. My mind's pretty bad too. And they kind of complain. And it takes an older woman to come alongside and say, just love him. Love him. And love your children. Um, To urge them to be sensible. There's that word again. Pure. Workers at home and so forth. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. It's amazing. The younger woman, the young woman in the church can undo what we're doing in the pulpit by the way they can they conduct themselves at home with their with their husbands. Sensible. Likewise, urge the young men to be. It's all Paul says to the young men. One word: sensible. Be sensible. Develop the moral character to be able to say no to what you to, to, to do what you know is right even when you want what's wrong. It's the only thing Paul says to young men is because, because the opposite, following the path of least resistance, is the clear and present danger to your spirituality. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, Paul says. Do, do not undo with your life, Titus, what you're trying to, to do from the pulpit with your words. All right. Now that's the lifestyle. He gets to the doctrine. For the grace of God, I love this, the grace of God literally has epiphany. That Christ is the epiphany, the appearance of God's grace. That God's grace isn't just a concept. Right? If you think of God's grace as a concept, as if somehow God has gone soft on sin. Right? That God is willing to give people who do deserve his wrath his love. Right? You, you'll, you'll get into all kinds of antinomianism. Paul never want you to, dis- to disconnect in your mind's eye the grace of God from the Son of God. Because the two go together like water and wet. God's grace is a person who appeared. How do you know God is gracious? How do you know God will not deal with you according to your sins? Because Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He's an epiphany of the grace of God. Bringing salvation to all men, all types of men, young and old, slave and free, and even Cretans and Irishmen, and even Americans as well. <laughs> but God's grace isn't, it doesn't, shouldn't leave, it, it takes us in our sin. It embraces us in our sin, but it doesn't leave us there. It lays hold of us, instructing us. It, it, it engages the mind. If, if you want to live a way you've never lived before, you must come to think a way you've never thought before. And it, it's, it's the mind that it, it, it addresses, instructing us, to deny, to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, there's that word again, righteously and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us. Now to stop there a second, the church lives between the two epiphanies of Christ. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Stott speaks about a cathedral and the, and, the, and the east and the west side, through the east window and the, and the sunrise of Christ's incarnation beams in. And through the west window, as the world's sun sets, the sun of Christ's second coming beams in. And the church needs the warm light of both Christ's first coming and his second coming. We live between the two epiphanies. And it's a beautiful picture of that here in uh, Titus 
2, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The word possession means um, treasured possession, something you treasure. I bought my son, I think he wanted a new phone, but I bought him a um, bench-made pocket knife. And I think he thought it was like 10 bucks. It was more than 10 bucks, to those of you who know knives. But it was for his 16th birthday. And I think he actually has come to realize it's, it's a, a lifetime treasure to keep. But I bought him something to treasure he'd have forever. This is, my dad bought me this knife when, he, when I was 16, right? Or 14, sorry, he's 14. My daughter's 16. Um, but um, a treasured possession. And Paul says, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Do you know that? Do you know that you are Christ's treasured possession? He loves you. He gave himself for you. I can imagine Christ giving himself because of his Father. Okay, Father, those, <laughs> those people are a bunch of sorry wasters. I will go, Father, and I will die for them because you tell me to. But Paul says it wasn't just because of that. He, did, he went because of his father, but he also went because of you. He loves you. He loved me, Paul says, and he gave himself for me. It's a beautiful thing. Zealous for good deeds. These things speak and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. With all authority, and I need to finish, I'm going to finish right now. But it's amazing, with all authority. That, that word, all authority, only occurs again in the New Testament when Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That when you preach, Paul, when I preach, not even the, our, our exegesis, if we, as when we explain God's word properly, not even Christ himself could speak with more authority. All authority. Speak with all authority when you preach. Not even Christ himself could speak with more authority in the pulpit than we do when we open up God's word. Right? Sound doctrine. And he, over no time. But he was in chapter 3, um, remind them to be subject to rulers, to be ready for every good deed. Now it's interesting, right? He, he ended up in his doctrinal commitment there. Christ has purified us to be zealous for every good deed. He's beginning the good deeds section. Chapter 3, he goes in and speaks about good deeds, what they are and, and why we should do them. But notice in, in verse um, 4, 5, and 6, he gives you another beautiful summary of the gospel. You'd think Paul could say to himself, oh, I've already mentioned the gospel, chapter 2. We can just talk about the good deeds. No, Paul never wants you to think about the good deeds, what you must do for God, without realizing the gospel is the thing that drives it. God is not, you're not there to try and work up the good deeds by yourself, like, like white-knuckling your way through a plank. You know, you're planking and it's like painful and you I can do it, I'm going to stay for the extra minute, whatever. And it's agonizing. That's not the gospel. We, that's not the Christian life. We need the gospel at every stage. And so Paul never tires of reminding us that the life we live because of the gospel can only be lived through the gospel. And so Paul again and again, goes back to the old message because this is what we need to hear. I never get tired 
of preaching the gospel to your people because, as Luther said, when someone said, why do you keep on preaching the gospel, Luther? Every day he preached it. Because I forget it every day, he said. 